My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, and blood support me in the whelming flood. When every earthly crop gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the veil. I wonder this morning as we start, if you would stand with me for just a moment. And if you know any or all of this, I would uh, invite you to join me uh, with this. And if you don't know any or all of this, I would invite you to just listen and let these words um, sink in. So if you know this, please join me. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. You may be seated. These three, word, these three verses are a challenge that I, I sent to our congregation a couple weeks ago in this series to memorize. They're found in, in Psalm 33. And two weeks ago, we handed out these cards that have these verses on them. If you didn't get one of those or if you misplaced it or want another one, we have some available you can pick up on the way out. And I want to encourage you to memorize these verses because these words that we just said are not only a proclamation of the truth, they're a declaration of how we can live and they are a prayer as well. So very, very powerful words, great words to have as a part of our lives, especially in this time in our life and in our world when we so desperately need hope. One of the greatest needs in our lives is for hope. And it's an amazing thing when you talk about hope because hope is all over the spectrum. I mean, there are things that we hope for that are, that are insignificant, they're unimportant, they're trivial, they're frivolous, all the way to the point where there are things that we hope for that are profoundly crucial, significant, and, and just like the, the heavy weight that we carry for these hopes. There are things that we hope for that, that are short-lived, they're temporary, they're, they're fleeting, they're here today and gone tomorrow, and there are other hopes that we have for a lifetime and beyond for an eternity. And the amazing thing is that there are some hopes that we have that are fulfilled, and there are some hopes that are unfulfilled, and there are some hopes that are not fulfilled yet. But what we've discovered is that it's not just what we hope for, but the true foundation comes in what we hope in. Who is it that our hope is in that will never fail us, that will never let us down? And we have these hopes. I have hopes. I have long, lifelong, deep hopes, hopes for my friends that don't know the Lord. I have hopes for them. I have hopes for my family, for my daughters. I have hopes for us as a congregation. I have hopes for me as a pastor, as a, as a Christ follower, as a, as a husband, as a dad. I have hopes for me. These are deep and profound hopes. But I also have frivolous hopes, temporary hopes, hopes that are kind of insignificant and meaningless. 
I'll illustrate. Last weekend, Pastor Kip preached because my wife and I were in Portland. We were participating in the Portland Marathon. I'd shared with uh, you earlier in the fall that I'd been dealing with an injury, so I had not trained for this marathon as I would normally train or as I would like. So going into the marathon, I decided I would forget about shooting for you know some great time. I would in- just go and enjoy the marathon, which for some of you is an oxymoron. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Just reduce the pace, the speed, the effort, and just enjoy it. But I also know myself, and I know that with a competitive spirit, with race day adrenaline, there was a high likelihood that I would get into a pack of runners that are running faster than I had trained for, and I would stick with them, and it would cause me to hit a horrible wall late in the race, and it would make for a horrible experience, or worse yet, it would uh, re-injure this thing that I've been dealing with. So I I thought, I've got to just go slow and enjoy it. So I decided that I would do something to help remind me throughout the race, don't take yourself seriously in this race, don't see yourself as a runner, just enjoy this. I did something that I haven't done in public for 15 years. I decided to take my hair out of my ponytail and just let it go as a reminder, don't take yourself so seriously. And when I told my wife this is what I was going to do, she said, I'm glad I'm not running with you. (laughs) So last Sunday at the race, my motto was, go slow and let it flow. (laughs) And so I ran that way. Now, the reason I tell you that is because there was a frivolous hope that went with it. So as I was running this race with this hair flowing, my hope was that I would look somewhat like this. (laughs) That was my hope. That as I was running, people would be thinking it was like Fabio. And every time I took an energy gel, I could say, I can't believe it's not butter. And it would just be an amazing thing. And this was such a hope for me. And and since the injury, we didn't register for the race until late, so our names were not on the bib. So I got the bib, and I wrote Bobbio, because I thought if I'm going to try to look like I should at least have the, the name. And I know that that's setting the hope a little bit high, so I had a secondary hope that if I couldn't look like Fabio, maybe I could look like Chewbacca, you know, with with all that hair. And when I came across the finish line, I could say, you know, and and have a great Chewbacca moment. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but my hair has been thinning over the years. It's getting thinner. There's a little more scalp showing than there used to be. And so, as I went with these hopes to look like Fabio or Chewbacca, I had a stark reminder that the hope was not fulfilled because at the finish line, they take your picture as you finish the race. And I was so excited to see this picture. And then I saw this picture and it made me realize that hope was unmet. I don't know if you'd like to see the picture. Uh, okay, okay, no, okay, wait, no, wait a second. Keep in mind, I've just run 26 miles, I am hot, I am sweaty, the hair is a little stringy, I'm pretty exhausted, but I am happy to finish, and I look like this. So, it was not the hope that I had, not quite what I wanted. But see, that's way on the end of frivolous, temporary hopes, but we have hopes all over. And what we're talking about in this series is not some hope of a follically challenged pastor. We're talking about something much deeper in Hebrews chapter 6 where it says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Something that will give us stability in the midst of life, storms and the hardships of life when it seems like all is lost, that there is a hope on a soul level that's much deeper. And it's from this verse that we titled the series, Anchored in Hope, that we could have that kind of a hope, a hope in someone that will never let us down. 
Someone that will never leave us or forsake us. Someone that is always faithful even when we are faithless. We have a hope as an anchor for the soul. Throughout Christian history, there have been um, identified three, you know, really, uh, I guess, pillar Christian virtues. And the Apostle Paul refers to them in 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 13. He says, now these three remain, and here they are, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Of course, God is love. For God so loved the world, right? Greater love has no one than this, and he would lay down his life for his friends. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, a new commandment I give to you. You should love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples by this, that you have loved one. Of course, his love is the greatest. And faith, of course, faith is important. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews, or Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace we are saved through faith that the, the righteous will walk by faith. And I find it interesting, almost metaphorical, the symbolism of having tucked in the middle of these two uh, bookends of love and faith the central thing of this Christian experience is hope. To have this hope as the anchor for our soul as we go through this life and into the next. And my desire, my prayer, my goal, my hope for this series, as I talked about two weeks ago, is found in Romans chapter 15 when it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. To know that in this world, in our lives, in this room, when we desperately need hope, we have a God of hope. And there is a way to live in relationship with that God by the power of his spirit that we can overflow in hope. And that's my desire for us, that as we embark on this throughout this fall, that we won't just understand biblical hope better. That is a goal. But it will go beyond just a cognitive understanding of what is the Bible talking about when it says hope but that it would go beyond that, that it would be our experience, that our capacity to hope would grow, that our hope quotient would go up, that we would be the most hope-filled people on the face of the planet because we have a God of hope who fills us to overflowing with hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, when we talk about hope, we looked at this, that so often there's, we use the word hope and there's this sense of uncertainty. Well, I hope so, but we're not really sure that's not biblical hope. And we looked at this definition from Timothy Keller about hope being a life-shaping certainty of a believed-in future. That there is someone that our hope is in that does not change. There's a certainty there, and there's a hope in the future. It's not a, we're not really sure. It's a believed-in future because of what he has said. And because of that, that one, the not yet, impacts the now. That we can live with a life overflowing with hope now because of the certainty of the not yet. And that not yet impacts, influences, and guides our daily life here. That because of who we hope in and because of what he has said and we know is true, that impacts our thinking, it impacts our priorities, it impacts our values, it impacts our decisions, our relationships, our, our dreams, our careers. All of life is impacted by that. Now, we know that there is absolutely nothing that can threaten who our hope is in. Jesus Christ, the risen one, is sovereign. Nothing can threaten that. And we believe with certainty on the authority of his word that nothing can threaten the believed in future, the things that he has promised. God is faithful, and he cannot lie. 
But it's this overflowing life of hope that we live in now that often gets threatened within us. There's something that, that threatens to take us away from this life that God created and designed and ordained for us to live, a life overflowing with hope. And that's what I want to talk about today, is to look at that threat that each one of us face. Now, I will say this. Before we get into this anymore today, as I've been working on this series and this sermon, uh, and you can ask some of the guys on staff, I have wrestled on this one because there are thoughts and insights and scriptures and truths that are a little bit all over the place, but in my head they all tie together, but I'm not sure that I can accurately in a very concise and linear manner put those out to you and articulate them. I, I've, I've wrestled with this for a few weeks. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. If at any time in this next half hour or so, there's something you say, ooh, I get that. Hold on to it. Or there's a verse you say, yeah, that's a good verse. Hold on to it. Or that's a cool insight. Or there's a truth for me. Hold on to it. Because if you say, well, yeah, that, that's okay, but I'll wait till I understand the whole sermon, you may never. So whatever you find, you hold on to that tenaciously, clutch it like his precious lump of gold. Because at the end of it all, you may say, wow, he talked for 30 minutes. I'm not really sure how all that tied together. Because the, the kind of this, the flowing of my thoughts here is, is just kind of meandering a bit. At the end, when you walk out of here, you can say this. Our pastor is so deep, I don't even understand what he just preached about. But I got this one. So you hold on to that. Well, with that, let's try. Let's go after this thing. Let me take you back. You, you may remember an old movie called Land Before Time. Let me take you back to a time before hope. A time before hope. A time when there was this beautiful, wonderful, glorious hopelessness. Adam and Eve were created in a perfect situation and were experiencing what the Bible would refer to as absolute perfect shalom. When all things are right, all things are good, there is no turmoil, there's no chaos, there's no war, there's no death, there's no tension, there's no sin. All things are good with each other. Life is great with them and the rest of creation. Life is great. All of creation with the creator. Everything is great. And because of that, Adam and Eve in this setting that God has created, this world that is so good and so perfect, there's two things that they don't have. A belly button, which we can talk about that later, and hope. Because they are living in the fulfillment of all hope. There's no reason. There's no need for them to have hope. Because all hopes are fulfilled in the setting. I mean, Hebrews 11 uh, 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. They didn't need that. They had it. They saw it. Romans 8 says this, But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has. I mean, if I said to you, one of my deep hopes is that someday I'll get to be the, the pastor of Cornwall Church, that's not a hope I already am. If I were to say to you, my really my deepest longing and hope is that someday I'll marry Doreen, that's not a hope I'm already married to her. If I said what I really hope for is that someday my friend Grant Fishbook will cry in a sermon, that's happening right now. <laughs> it happens every week. Why would I hope for something that I already have? And so here Adam and Eve are in this, this land of hopeless, glorious hopelessness. Does that make sense? Because they didn't need to hope. And then the enemy of their souls, the enemy of our souls, comes to them, and the enemy will always seek to kill, 
steal, and destroy. And while they live in this perfect state of shalom, all is right with the world and the creation and the creator, the enemy comes and begins to plant some seeds of doubt, some questions. Is there maybe something else that you ought to be hoping for? Has God maybe held out on something that is really good? Can you really trust what he said? I mean, is what he said really accurate? And there are two questions that come up for Adam and Eve, and they are the two questions that come up for us, though we probably don't articulate them. It would be very, very healthy if we would, that any time we come up against some temptation, we ask these two questions. Can God be trusted? Is there anything good for me outside of the will of God? And Adam and Eve are faced with these two questions. Can I trust my heavenly Father? Can I trust what God said? And is there something good for me that's outside of his will? Has he been holding off? Has he been saying, you know what, I I don't want them to have this, and, and that's good. And every time we face temptation, those two questions remain. Do I trust God, and is there something better for me outside of his will? And as Adam and Eve rest with these, they answer the questions, I guess I don't trust God, and I think there is something better for me outside of his will. That maybe I know something, or maybe I've just found out something, where he's been holding out the best from me. And they cave. They give in to temptation. And you know, for those of you who are familiar with Genesis chapter 3, or grown up in the church, or maybe in your own understanding, we always have this picture, I think, in our mind that they ate of the forbidden fruit, and then immediately there's guilt and shame and all this. Maybe, maybe... Maybe not, though. Maybe for a season they enjoyed the pleasures of sin. Maybe as they ate this forbidden fruit, they're thinking, I guess I did know a little bit better than God did. I think this is kind of nice. Boy, I wonder why he didn't tell us. No wonder he didn't. Boy, I don't know that I can trust him anymore. Now, now maybe not. But the Bible does talk about Moses not enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. I mean, the reality is, The reason we're tempted by things is because they offer pleasure. I mean, we're not tempted to take up rubber mallets and smack ourselves on the head because there's not a pleasure with that. Andy Stanley said, if you're sinning and not finding some pleasure in it, you're doing it wrong. I mean, (laughs) really. But it's temporary. And so maybe, and I don't know, maybe it was immediate, maybe not. But Adam and Eve bought into the lie of Satan, and they were the first ones who ever experienced buyer's remorse. Because they found themselves disappointed. They found themselves distanced. They found inside of them just something died. And for the first time, they're experiencing guilt. What is this feeling? Could you imagine feeling guilt for the first time? Shame. Why why do I feel this way? And, And the desire to hide and to blame. And where does all this come from? And in this giving in to temptation, in this caving to sin, Adam and Eve hope for the very first time, and it's a very negative hope. Now they're hoping for the first time, and they're hoping God doesn't find out, that God doesn't notice. They're hoping God doesn't see. They're hoping that God won't find them. They're hoping that God won't come into the garden. And it's not only the fall of their life, it's the fall of all creation. It's the curse that comes because they didn't trust their father and they believed that there was something good 
outside of God's will for them. And it's not just them, but it affects all of creation. Romans 8 talks about how, how creation is, is groaning as, in the, as if in the pains of childbirth, how, how all of creation is subjected to frustration. Here's the beautiful thing in the midst of that. In Romans 8, it says, creation is subjected to frustration in hope, in hope that there will come a day when it will be liberated from this bondage of decay. And here we see the incredible grace of God. This is what Pastor Kip preached about last week. The grace of God, God's mercy, God's goodness, God's love. That even in the midst of this rebellion, even in the midst of this sin, even in the midst of the curse and the fall, that God comes around and he says, I want to redeem this. And God puts into motion the hope of redemption. And redemption is the birth of hope out of death. And it's only because of the goodness of God. I mean, from the very beginning, there's never been any death. And God slays, sheds the blood of an innocent third-party animal and takes the skins of those animals and covers over the shame and the guilt of Adam and Eve. A, fore, a foreshadowing, a precursor of what would happen later when the innocent lamb of God would have his blood shed so that his robe of righteousness could cover over our shame. And all throughout, you see God continuing to, to work this redemption process, calling of Abraham, the giving of the law, the promised land, Jacob and the 12 tribes, the temple, the sacrificial system, all of it pointing up to and culminating in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And not only that, but the promise that one day all things would be made new again. In Revelation 21, when Jesus said, I am making all things new, there will be a day a glorious day when every single one of us who trust in Jesus Christ will once again be beautifully hopeless because all hopes will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's that picture. So when you think about us and how this plays out for us, you begin to realize that we're called to live in hope here and now as we wait for the not yet, a hope in him, the source of our hope, the one we hope in. First Peter chapter three says we've been, we've been given a new birth into a living hope, a living hope like now. Ephesians, Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. He says, I pray that the, your eyes could see, the eyes of your heart could see the hope to which you have been called. And here's where where all this converges because this hope that we are called to live in, this hope that we've been given new birth into, is threatened every time we come into a temptation situation. Every time we have to ask, can God be trusted? Is there something good for me outside of the will of God? Because what happens for us most often is when we're tempted, we look at that temptation or the sin as an isolated event. This is just a thing. It's just a night. It's just a weekend. It's just a, a relationship. It's just a date. It's just a, a business deal. It's just a, a one lie. It's just it's as an event. And very often we'll say, and God will forgive me after I'm done with it. And we fail to see what's at stake when we give in to this. Because every time when we answer, yeah, okay, I guess God can't be trusted. I think there's something good for me outside of the will of God. It just drags us away from the life of hope that we are called to live in right here and right now. 
It disrupts the beautiful work that God is doing in our lives right now. I mean, look at this scripture. When it says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. There's more, at, more to it than just an event where I'm going to cave and then ask for forgiveness. This is waging war against our soul. Or when James would say, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he has looked at this word. He is dragged away. Dragged away from what? Dragged away from the life of hope that we're called to live in? Dragged away from this beautiful work that God is doing in our life? Dragged away from this character development, this transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ that he's working on? Dragged away from the blessed hope? Dragged away from all that and enticed? It pulls us away from what God is wanting to do in us here and now. Not just the someday. And it gets even more sinister. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. See, there's a whole lot more at stake than just, oh, here's an event, and yeah, it's a weakness, and it's something I struggle with, and God always forgives me. It's much deeper than that. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. Why, if it wasn't such a big deal, why would Jesus include, when he was asked, Lord, how should we pray, why would he include this line? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or some of your translations, from the evil one. Because he recognized how serious this was and what a reality it was for us, for his disciples, for us, his followers. On the night that he was betrayed, he's in the garden, and twice he says these words to his disciples, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Pray that you're not going to fall. There's more at stake here. You don't understand the ripple effects of what happens when you decide to do things in your own way. When we are tempted, we, if we could just stop and say, there's more at stake right now, I need to ask right now, do I trust God? Do I trust him? Do I really think there's something better for me outside of his will? All right, so Adam and Eve are in this incredible situation in a great relationship with the Father in a garden, and they're tempted. Thousands of years later, Jesus is in a garden, and there's a temptation. And Jesus has to ask, do I trust the Father here? Do I think there's something better for me outside of the will of God? Is it my will or God's will at this point? Do I trust him? And I wonder, again, this is speculation on my part, if you take like the, the two big Christian holidays, Easter and Christmas, you know, those two, some of you are going, yeah, I was here for both of them. Okay, great. All right. So if you take something from the Christmas story and put it on, layer it on top of the Easter story, out of the Christmas story, I think the song is A Little Town of Bethlehem. The line says, the hope and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Okay. Take that line over here in the garden. Here's Jesus. He's asking this question. Can I trust the Father? Is there something better for me outside the will of God? Should I do my will? And I wonder if in all of heaven, the hopes and the fears of all the years hang in the balance at this moment. That all of heaven says we have been putting our hope in this moment. God has set into play from Genesis 3 this redemption process, and it culminates right here with you, Jesus. And our hope is on you that you will say, I can trust my Father, not my will, but your will be done. It's all predicated on what you do in this moment. 
And at the same time, I wonder if all heaven fears we've seen when someone who walked closely with the Father was in a garden and faced with the temptation, we've seen how it went, that first Adam, and there's this fear, Jesus, no, 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 don't cave, trust the Father. Will the hopes be fulfilled or will the fears be fulfilled? And I don't want to put undue pressure on you because the, the destiny and fate of all humanity is not resting on your shoulders. That was taken care of with Jesus. But I wonder if when we are facing a temptation, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and I don't know, but I wonder if all of heaven says our hopes and our fears are resting on your decision right now. We hope that you'll trust the Father. We hope that you'll go with his will. We hope that you'll know that God is good. He knows what's best. He wants what's best for you. You can trust him. Someday you, you may not understand it, but trust him. Or the fear is that you'll just downplay it as an event and you'll cave and, and you don't even know the kind of impact it's going to have on your life and your family's life and your faith and what God is doing in your life. To know that God can be trusted and that there's nothing good outside the will of the Father for any of us. You see, when you look at Scripture, when we're dealing with temptation, it's beyond just say no. And, and I mean, that was a campaign years ago. Here's what I didn't like about the campaign, is that it's really negatively motivated, which only works so long. Positive motivation is far more effective than negative motivation. The other thing is, it depends entirely on my willpower. And social scientists and psychologists will tell you, Self-will, willpower is like a muscle, and it can fatigue, and it can wear down, and it won't last. This isn't just about negative having willpower. Scripture would bear this out. We have something more. The grace of God not only forgives us for our sins, the grace of God saves us. The grace of God allows us to stand in the midst of temptation. Out of Titus, we never spend a lot of time in Titus. Titus says, uh, Titus chapter 2, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but it also teaches us to say yes and to live self-controlled. This isn't just pick yourself up by the bootstraps. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That as we walk by the Spirit, we keep in step with the Spirit. It's God's Spirit that helps us. It's His grace. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Here and now, so often I hear people that kind of, they might not say it exactly word for word like this, but this is their thinking behind it. I prayed the prayer, I asked for God's forgiveness, I received in my heart, I've got my ticket into heaven, and then their life plays out like I can do whatever I want between here and there, because it doesn't matter, I've got my ticket in. The scripture says, no, 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 no. Because of God's grace, because of that believed in future, that impacts how we live right now in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how we live now, in the now, as we wait for the not yet, the hope that Jesus Christ will come make all things new and make things beautifully hopeless again. All right, then he goes on. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. That Jesus would give his very life 
shed his blood to make this a possibility for us, to give us a new birth into a living hope. He says, that's why. That's why we live this way. The church I grew up in, we sang a hymn, and the line that I remember was, I'll live for him who died for me. I'll live for him. He did this. And, and look what he did. He did this to redeem us from and to purify us for. Redeem us from our sin and to purify us for himself. That he would redeem us from the negative, he would forgive us and he would purify us for that he would transform us. That we are saved by what he did on his cross and we are sanctified by what he's doing in our lives. It goes both ways. It's like the way that we live now in hope, we look back in the shadow of the cross and the beautiful hope of the resurrection, the glorious uh, hope to be that not yet, that is to be when Jesus makes all things right. And then at the very end he says, and eager to do what is good. That when we understand the love of Christ, his grace, his mercy, his patience, his sacrifice, we understand our life and our identity is in him. It's not this, oh, I can't do that anymore. I don't get to do that anymore. It's this, I want to do what will cause me to have the life and the goodness within the will of the Father. Psalm 84, 11 says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It says, oh, I, I ought to do this, or I shouldn't ought to do that, or whatever. You know, when you say the word ought, when it talks about temptation and living the life that God has called us to, is it an ought of obligation or opportunity? This obligation, this duty, I can't do this anymore, and I have to do this, and all that, that kind of this heaviness with it? Or the opportunity of, man, this is allowing God to shape and transform me. This is what God has in mind for me. This is what I was created to do. This is how I, I live. Because my life is in Christ. My salvation is in Christ. My identity is in Christ. My hope is in Christ. And the enemy of our souls will do everything he can to convince you not to trust the Father that there's something good for you outside of his will. And every time we give in to that, he kills, steals, and destroys the beautiful work that God is doing in our life. Good friend of mine, Duke, agreed to share a part of his story and his struggles and his ongoing struggle and temptation and hope. Why don't you watch this, Duke's story. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Duke Scott. I just remember in elementary school, middle school, um, you know, I came from a family that was kind of cold, hardworking, um, but uh, there wasn't a lot of interaction um, Sunday night through Thursday night. But on Friday nights, um, I do remember mom and dad often having a couple cocktails and things started to come out like attaboys and I love yous and hugs and things of that nature. And there was just some kind of, of clue in that, boy, this, is, this feels good. And so there was a connection there for me that was made that was very attractive and uh, that stuck with me. So I don't remember my first drink, but I do remember uh, when I started drinking in volume and that was about age 16, where college became an almost daily thing. 
um, you know, when I was in the Navy, it became a, a definite daily thing. And uh, eventually it caught up with me and um, I uh, went through my first treatment center at that time in uh, May of 96. I was uh, given a general other than honorable discharge from the Navy. You would think uh, a lot of people at that time would really take a solid look at their drinking. Unfortunately for me, uh, I still loved it too much. I liked the way it made me feel. And so it continued to be a problem. Uh, going through the latter part of the 90s, um, you know, there became a lot more emotional distress. And it was January of 2000, I actually uh, entered into my second treatment center. I would like to say that I had a lot of um, linear or prolonged success, but that's just not my story. Um, my story is up to this point that, uh, you know, there have been a lot of struggles. I drifted to really ugly things like cry for help suicide attempts, uh, which I'm certainly not uh, proud of, but it's part of my story. Uh, luckily, I never wanted to die. I wanted the absence of pain, and I didn't know how to get out of where I was. Um, the enemy's really good at having me uh, shame myself, but I learned instead of having to hold my head down in shame, you know, I started holding my head down and saying amen at the end um, in prayer. You know, in times of distress, in those dark nights of the soul, when, when I can feel comfort in knowing that I have a Savior who knows what I'm feeling, um, there's nothing else that compares to that. Growing up in Bellingham, I never thought I'd be associated with the Lighthouse Mission. July of 2014, I did join the New Life Program, which is a year-long Christian discipleship recovery program. Uh, people at the mission became like a second family to me. And that's really where things have started to evolve, both in my sobriety um, and in my spiritual life. And hopefully, maybe, I'm able to pass that along to somebody who's, you know, slid as far down the scale as I have in the past. The healthiest thing I can do is be transparent. And as I'm sitting here with you today, I have 38 days sober. And uh, one day at a time, that can stretch into forever. As long as I am still on this side of the dirt, there is still hope. And I firmly believe that's why God's kept my heart beating to this point. I really do. My identity and my hope is in Jesus Christ. My name is Duke Scott. My identity and my hope is in Jesus Christ. You know, in Colossians, we read these words, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. This mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the one that we hope in is the one who lives within us. That's why we have been given new birth into a living hope, because Christ is right here within us. And yeah, do we face temptations? Absolutely. And how do we face those? Ask these questions. Can God be trusted? Do I really think there's something good for me outside of God's will? And God's word gives us some practical hope in those times of temptation. And I want to just real quickly run through this. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives this whole history of Israel. He gives a, a quick history lesson of all the temptations they caved to. They caved to idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, in testing of God, in their attitude and grumbling, and there's consequences that come with it over and over. And he just lists off and says, this is our history. Every time we didn't trust God, we trust ourselves. Every time we went outside the will of God, 
And then in verse 11, he says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. We don't have to make the same mistake as they did. We can learn from them. And then I love this line where he says, the warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. That for all those years, the desire was culminated in Christ, and Christ is within us. He says, now don't go getting cocky. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You know, pride goes before a fall. I think I've got this one handled. I, can do, I, I got this now. No, no, no. And then in that next verse, in verse 13, what he does is he just summarizes our condition and God's promises. What it means to be as human beings with temptation, living in the hope of Christ and the promises of God when we're facing those things. And he says in verse 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Don't be thinking you're the only one that's ever faced what you're going through right now. That's pretty arrogant. You're not the first and you won't be the last. In fact, in Hebrews 4, it says that Jesus, Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So don't be thinking you're the only one. And here's the promise. God is faithful. You can count on God. You can count on him. He's faithful even when we're faithless. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. It's like he puts a governor, like a limiter on temptation. He knows what you can handle. If you ever hear yourself saying, I just couldn't help myself. I, I, I can't not do that. or you know, It's simply not true. I'm not saying it's easy, but God knows what you can handle. He says, I'm not going to put it out there where you say, there's no chance for you on this one. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And God will give you a way. He's given you his family. He's given you his word. He's given you his spirit. He says, you can do this. And he promises that for us. What is even more beautiful is that Christ in you, the hope of glory, He's there. Hebrews 2 says, because he, Jesus himself, suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And Jesus, our hope, Jesus knows, and he helps. He's promised. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll give us the strength. He's walked these paths. He knows, and he will help. I love in Psalm 25, when the psalm says, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Who we hope in is secure. Our hoped for and believed in future is secure. This living hope that we get to live in each day is threatened when we are tempted. And when we are tempted to be able to pause and say, wait a second, I know there's something more, there's something greater at stake here, but there's someone greater at work here. I can trust God. There's nothing good for me outside of the will of God. I will live in this mystery. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And to live each day overflowing with hope. I want us to sing about that, this song that Luke taught us this morning about Christ being the overcomer and by his victory and by his power, by his cross and his strength and spirit, we can overcome as well. Stand and we'll sing this and then I'll close this in prayer.